Good morning, everyone. Good morning and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. And we are delighted for today's presentations by our residents on their, uh, their research from this year. Before uh, uh, too long, I will be introducing Duck Doe, who is the director of resident research for our Department of Medicine. And he will be introducing uh, each of today's speakers. I wanted to let you know that the evaluation sheet today actually is two-sided. And so there are one side to tell us a little bit about what Joseph presented and uh, the other for David. So you'll see that this is a two-sided report. And today's morning is split between some time in this room and what Duck will explain to you, the poster session that will immediately follow the oral presentations. And this wall here will be coming down so that we can easily move into this other room and see the fantastic 15 scientific posters that our very talented resident crew has put together. So Duck Doe has had an enviable and admirable career. He was valedictorian of his high school in Los Angeles. He then uh, uh, went to Occidental College where he was Phi Beta Kappa. He came to the University of Vermont for his MD degree. He came to Dartmouth and has been an assistant professor with us and now director of the residency research program, but also works in administrative capacities and care management uh, and in a lot of focused attention around the care of patients. He is a teacher's teacher. He's won 67 of our department's teaching awards. I think he holds the record for that. He can't get that many foul to put on his lapel. He has but one, but he has 67 uh, nominations, so uh, we respect that. He's also a winner of the Gold Humanism in Medicine uh, Award as an inductee into that society. Uh, he's a member of the AOA and so many other things. And that's why it's just so absolutely wonderful that you're a role model for our residents and that you're in charge of their resident research education program. So without further ado, come tell us a little bit about today's speakers. By the way, there are no conflicts of interest with today's presentations. Good morning. Thank you all for joining us. And thank you, Dr. Rothstein, for that nice and kind introduction. And your check is in the mail. <laughs> um, so as you may or may not know, um, this past year we actually revamped our research curriculum to focus on career development. So this morning you will hear two special presentations from our residents that sort of highlight the strength of our residency and the vision of a successful career path we hope for our residents. And our first speaker is the Dr. Joseph Sasso. He graduated from the uh, University of Buffalo, where he received his MD. He's currently a junior and plans for a fellowship in hematology and oncology. Uh, his research are multiple and include a work on pancreatic cancer, stem, uh, stem cell transplantation, and coagulopathy. So without further ado, Dr. Joseph Sasso. Hey guys, thanks for coming. Uh, please ignore the learning objectives you were sent out on polycythemia vera. My talk is on <laughs> my talk is on uh, giving thrombosis prophylaxis to hospitalized cirrhotics. And 
This was an uh, issue that I got interested in when I was involved with an actual case. Uh, this is a very classic VA patient case, mid-50s male with hepatitis C and alcohol abuse, end-stage cirrhosis, comes in with uh, pretty severe edema, ascites, dyspnea on exertion. They admit him to the VA from the urgent care clinic for diuresis, plan to do a paracentesis. He's got the pretty classic uh, lab profile of a cirrhotic. His INR is 1.7, his platelets are 89. Uh, so we admit him, we start him on diuresis. I put him on uh, heparin 5000 TID for VTE prophylaxis, that, mean, that being a venous thromboembolism, kind of a buzzword for DVT-PE. So the next morning we come in, we thought we did a good job, but he's uh, very confused, he's encephalopathic. Uh, the nurse tells us he had a large bout of melana. Um, his hemoglobin, we find out, dropped substantially that morning. Uh, so we call GI rather urgently. Uh, they send him upstairs, he has an endoscopy and he's found to have an actively oozing gastric varix, uh, which they treat. So uh, this is one of my you know, first patient encounters in intern year, and I kind of wondered, did, did I cause that? Because uh, I gave him the DVT prophylaxis. Did we, in doing so, uh, cause more harm than good? And the short answer is that no one really knows yet until we publish this study. But <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's never uh, been looked at. Um, all the studies that showed a benefit in anticoagulating hospitalized patients excluded people with thrombocytopenia and coagulopathy, so cirrhotics are pretty much uh, routinely removed from those. There's no guidelines. Um, we have very small amount of data using anticoagulants in cirrhotics. There's some small trials using low molecular weight heparin for portal vein prophylaxis that appears to be safe. And we know from some studies that providers are using this very willy-nilly and not very often. Uh, one study cites, whoops, 24%. And I think the hesitancy is obviously from the coagulation profile. And certainly there's a lot of uh, reasons a cirrhotic would have an increased risk for bleeding. Uh, you know, their synthetic function is very decreased. They have a very decreased incidence of all, almost all the factors, vitamin K deficiency, they have low platelets, so uremia, their platelets don't function as well. But there's a whole other side of the story that the INR doesn't show. Cirrhotics actually have a very decreased incidence in a lot of factors that uh, prevent clots. So they're not making as much protein C or protein S. They're not making as much antithrombin. And this whole side of the graph isn't really shown on traditional lab panels. In fact, the only items that are shown on the INR have highlighted in white here. So it's possible that your cirrhotic patient is living on this kind of dangerous seesaw between bleeding and clotting. Uh, you guys may remember from medical school the coagulation cascade. Uh, the real money enzyme is thrombin, which is the endpoint of the cascade and kind of correlates to how likely you are to clot. And uh, people have actually looked at the amount of thrombin generated in cirrhotics, and it's actually equal or increased to non-cirrhotic controls, implying that they have a pretty reasonable clotting system. Uh, but the actual money is in if they, the incidence of VTE in these patients. And we know from large uh, observational studies, they actually have a, a very real incidence. Um, 
So studies that looked at percentage, uh, 1.8 in cirrhotics versus 0.9 in non-cirrhotic controls, uh, a relative risk of about two, so double the risk of VTE compared to non-cirrhotic controls. And all the studies are pretty universally show that the INR does not predict the VT risk, large INRs not being protected. So uh, with that kind of <coughs> data in mind, I wanted to set up a study that would sort of address this. Um, I wanted to make a big retrospective study. The main point of interest I wanted to look at was the safety of prophylaxis in these patients. So does prophylaxis increase your risk of bleeding, length of stay, mortality, multiple other factors. The secondary outcomes I wanted to look at were the efficacy of the prophylaxis, if it actually prevented VTE, and are we using it here at Dartmouth, and how often. So uh, I was able to get a list of emissions that were billed for cirrhosis by ICD-9 codes that did a five-year period, 2007 to 2012. Uh, the use of prophylaxis I was able to get very accurately from pharmacy billing codes, so we were able to get every admission in this, we were able to tell if they were billed for 40 units of, of Lovenox or 5,000 of heparin. Uh, I wanted to include all patients uh, with cirrhosis over 18. I only did patients admitted to hospital medicine, so this is you guys. No patients on surgery or ICU. Uh, and I excluded patients who wouldn't get um, prophylaxis when they came in. So anyone who was bleeding when they came in, which is obviously a large component of cirrhotic admissions, they're excluded. Anyone who already had a VTE was excluded. Um, if we went through their medical record and uh, found that they were misbilled for cirrhosis, which did happen, um, they were excluded. Um, patients who had a large amount of their hospital stay at an outside hospital where we couldn't tell if they got prophylaxis or not, they were excluded too. And anyone who came in on full dose uh, anticoagulation, coumadin and whatnot, they were pulled out of the study. So uh, we admit a lot of cirrhotics here. We ended up admitting uh, almost a thousand admissions in the five-year period for cirrhosis, and that accounted for 711 patients. So, out of those, uh, we excluded about 400. Most of the exclusions were for patients who came in with the GI bleed. Uh, no cirrhosis being the next uh, most common. 70, 70 admissions were pulled out for that. 46 were on full dose anticoagulation. Uh, and we ended up including a pretty reasonable number, 600 patients met our inclusion criteria. And it just so happens that, uh, through sheer luck, it was very evenly distributed. Half, almost exactly half, got DVT prophylaxis, and almost exactly half got no prophylaxis for their admission. So here's all the patients we pulled out. Uh, pretty reasonable average age, 57, a little bit more male. Pretty long length of stay for these cirrhotic patients, the average being 8.2. These are standard deviations here. Um, so you see half received prophylaxis. And also fortuitously, within the prophylaxis, about half was Lovenox and half was heparin. Uh, we gave a reasonable amount, about five days worth of Lovenox. This is uh, the 40 milligram or 20 mil uh, 30 milligram dose of Lovenox that they use in patients with renal insufficiency. And each one of these is 5,000 units of heparin. So this is usually given three times a day or twice a day. Um, and they were a reasonably high level of cirrhosis, so the MELD of 14, reasonably high coagulopathy. The average INR was 1.6, and some thrombocytopenia. So the first question is, how are we choosing to utilize this? Um, well, here is a breakdown of how 
uh, the patients who received prophylaxis versus which is this group versus those who didn't. So there's clearly a selection bias uh, from the prescribers here. Um, patients who are being chosen for prophylaxis have more platelets, significantly more. They have a lower MELT score. Uh, they have definitely a lower INR. <laughs> the PT is unchanged, ironically. Um, so you can see that uh, when these patients are being admitted, there's definitely some bias or thought into who's receiving the prophylaxis <coughs> and who's not. Uh, so the big question, uh, were there any adverse events in the prophylaxis group that were not in the no prophylaxis group? So here's uh, the outcome, the main issue, the primary endpoint I was looking for was in hospital bleed, and that was not significantly different in the two groups. Um, there was a trend towards increased non-GI bleeding uh, that did not reach significance. Uh, there was a trend in increased need for blood transfusion that did also not meet significance. Interestingly, secondary endpoint, did this prevent uh, VTE? Nope, not at all. <laughs> uh, it has slightly more VTE in the prophylaxis group, uh, which is interesting. And none of the other, none, so none of our adverse outcomes were significant, actually. Uh, so I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. Then we did a subgroup analysis, and this is sort of where the big finding of this study is. We looked at the type of prophylaxis the patients received heparin or Lovenox, and then we wanted to look at their risk of bleeding from each one. So it turned out heparin actually had a significantly higher um, odds ratio of having an in-hospital bleed, 2.4. These are all significant. And a higher likelihood of having a non-GI bleed. Um, and that was if you received heparin at all or just heparin. So these are there's a small group that received <coughs> both, and it's significant in both of these. Uh, there was no trend towards increased bleeding in the Lovenox group, This is rather interesting. So I think the big take-home points from this, uh, prophylaxis is pretty safe in this population. There wasn't a significant change in bleeding, death, other outcomes. Uh, we failed to show our secondary outcome. Uh, we did not show an effect of preventing VTE in this study. And there's actually um, some data that in the literature that has also failed to show an effect of preventing VTE uh, in these patients with anticoagulation, so we're not alone. There's a lot of confounders that we can't, that we can't address that I'll touch on later, but I couldn't um, look at things like uh, sequential compression devices, which we use a lot, that may, may partially explain why we didn't show an effect. Um, we did show that there's a big hesitancy to prescribe the prophylaxis in certain patients. Uh, there's definitely a selection bias. Um, and that kind of highlights that there's no guidelines. Providers are just kind of doing whatever they kind of, they're kind of eyeballing it. Um, and the big point for you guys, um, consider low molecular weight heparin for your uh, prophylaxis in your cirrhotic patients as opposed to unfractionated heparin. Uh, you may decrease the rate of in-hospital bleeds. Um, so why does heparin, in theory, provoke slightly more bleeding risk than Lovenox? Uh, that's a good question. Um, there's a group of, of physicians who took uh, the plasma from cirrhotic patients and plasma from controls, exposed it to different anticoagulants, and looked at uh, the amount of thrombin generated. And thrombin is generated in a graph, so 
it's kind of complex, but there'll be a peak thrombin generation and a lag time. There you're under the curve here is what they call endogenous thrombin potential, and that's basically the total amount of thrombin you're making. So turns out insterotics, hep both heparin and lovinox, are more potent, which means that uh, if a control is in inhibits so much uh, thrombin, in a cirrhotic patient, there'll be a higher inhibition. It turns out that heparin is even slightly more potentier, if you will. Uh, so both uh, have a higher rate of inhibition, heparin more so than Lovenox, uh, if you can follow that, may explain somewhat why the, uh, we found a slightly increased bleeding risk with heparin, not Lovenox. Um, so there's a lot of limitations to this study, certainly. Uh, it's retrospective. It's just our hospital. Um, we certainly had an inhomogeneous patient population. Uh, the group who received the prophylaxis was significantly different from the group who didn't. And those two groups probably did not have the same risk up front of bleeding and clotting. So it's hard to totally say that this study proves um, that the risk is that the outcome has changed. Uh, I wanted to look at confounders. I specifically want to get aspirin because that certainly increases your bleeding risk. And I could, for as much as I tried, I could not get the aspirin data. We don't bill for it here. We just, I guess we just give out aspirin. Um, and so there's very little record of it. And I tried to get it from the pharmacy distribution warehouse, but it wasn't able to. Uh, I was able to get uh, Plavix. The Plavix was only administered to two patients in the whole data set, so I didn't think it was significant. Um, it would have been nice to look at the risk factors for things like thrombosis in each group, and you could have done that by assessing uh, BMI, the smoking history, if, certainly if they had an active cancer. These are all points that could have been used to calculate some risk that we weren't able to pull out due to the complexity of the medical record. And as I mentioned earlier, um, sequential compression devices are used here, and uh, it's not really recorded in the, uh, the uh, medical record, so I couldn't pull it out. Um, but I think the big uh, future direction is this is pretty ripe for future study, especially a prospective trial, which would be wonderful. Because um, there's really no data on this, and it's something that uh, the lowest level of medicine, like the medical intern, deals with every day when they have to click that box. <laughs> uh, so uh, in closing, I just want to uh, make some acknowledgments. Dr. Ornstein, my mentor, uh, Parambur, who helped me a lot with the organization of writing up this project. Uh, I had multiple medical students who spent a lot of time going through the charts. Uh, only one of them is here today, but they deserve a lot of thanks because they did a lot of work on this. Dr. Dixon, who helped me from gastroenterology, and uh, my statisticians, uh, Spencer and Todd. Uh, so at this point, I'll take any questions you guys have. Dr. Rossi. I have one question. So yeah. you chose to do it by encounter rather than total number of patients in your division, right? It was 600 admissions, oh, yeah. 400 patients. Yeah. Would it have been different if you had done any analysis by patients rather than total admissions? Because the same patients who were readmitted had their same risk factors or their same bias or their same physiology <clears throat> the data set. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I took each admission as like, a new event, and because you're getting a new you're getting a new exposure or not exposure, but you're right. Um, each patient has unique risk, and because I think because we couldn't pull out um, things to calculate the risk very easily, 
it's it would it would have been more difficult to do it the way you're suggesting. Oh yes, sir. So you you mentioned a random uh, prospective trial. What would the prospective trial be? No uh, no VTE prophylaxis at all versus prophylaxis or uh, stratifying it some other way. Yeah, I would do um, prophylaxis first. No prophylaxis stratified by um, level of cirrhosis, so like child's grade, or you could stratify it by INR. So what you're looking for, ideally what, if you want to make a guideline, um, you should really say like providers should uh, prophylax every cirrhotic up to an INR of two because at two, above two we found an increased risk of bleeding that was greater than the protective benefit of the prophylaxis. And it may be that there's no INR that where that's the case and it may be that if you do the st study large enough, you'll show that you should get prophylaxis to every cirrhotic no matter how, how deranged their coagulation profile is. So uh, yeah. I think that would be a great study, and you could, it's, it could be a single-center study to start. Um, my question is, is would, are there any algorithms that are uh, eminence-based rather than evidence-based that you would run into uh, if you tried to set that up? Um, I guess About I don't... The use of low molecular weight heparin or heparin and as prophylaxis in cirrhotic patients or anybody. I, I guess I don't know what you mean by eminence versus evidence. Uh, eminence meaning not uh, a bunch of a bunch of quote experts got into a room and said this is what we think it should be. Ah, oh, I see. Um, well, I guess the, the eminence hasn't yet met on this topic. Um, there's very, the, uh, so if you're here, there's some, something to do. But uh, so there's there's basically no recommendations. There's one review uh, where they basically concluded that if you're going to use prophylaxis in cirrhotics, we suggest Lovenox. So this isn't a new finding per se. I'm the first one to show it actually made a difference. It, I think they're suggesting Lovenox because it's the only thing that's been tried. Um, so I don't think, I think if you were to set up the study, nobody would argue with you. And as I showed here, um, we're using them pretty interchangeably, heparin or Lovenox at this hospital already. We're using them by like 50-50 if we choose to anticoagulate. Yes, sir. If you can compare two types of thromboembolism and prophylaxis, how do you grade the intensity of the treatment of these two of the two drugs? Is there a way that you can be sure that you are giving, giving the equivalent intensity of anticoagulation? Yeah, I mean that's a good question too. Um, you could do it very expensively, obviously, by looking at uh, thromograms for each patient. I think um, you, if you were going to do it, you would probably just follow the current standards, which are we give heparin at this dose, Lovenox at this dose, and assume they work equally. But you're right, because we've shown that they, they don't actually work that equally. Um, yeah. All right, thanks everybody. Thank you, Joe, for that uh, great presentation. And our next speaker is Dr. David Nagel. He is currently a senior here, uh, graduated from the University of Rochester, where he received both his MD and PhD in pharmacy and physiology. Uh, we are fortunate to have him uh, next year as being our, one of our chief residents. So following his chief year, he plans to uh, do a fellowship in uh, pulmonary and critical care. So here's Dr. David Nagel. Good morning, everyone. So um, as 
Dr. just mentioned, I, I have more of a basic science background, at least from graduate school. And uh, part of what I think residency offers is an ability to get different experiences. So I went way outside of my comfort zone and started uh, this project with Dr. Andrews, um, really doing more of a cost-effective and modeling project that really has nothing to do with basic science. Um, but it's in an area of interest, uh, and that would be pulmonary hypertension. Um, in the lab, I studied vascular signaling, and that was actually in carotid arteries, but it just so happens that the same signaling pathway happens in the pulmonary vasculature. So I guess I'm fortunate in that sense. So um, these are the learning objectives you received, and this is kind of how the, uh, the outline of the talk will go. Um, we'll talk a little bit about pulmonary hypertension and the different types of it. Um, we'll talk a little bit about cost of effective analysis, and my disclaimer is I am by no means an expert, but I will uh, do my best to answer questions if you have. And then um, talk about the therapies and sort of what we found in our um, project that we did. So um, the World Health Organization classifies pulmonary hypertension essentially based on the etiology that causes the pulmonary hypertension. The first group is um, where my interest lies because it deals with the actual vascular pathology that happens. So this is pulmonary arterial hypertension. And on the right hand side, you will see that um, there are some uh, examples of diseases that can lead to these states. Group two is often due to uh, heart dysfunction, left-sided causing right-sided heart dysfunction, and then uh, the pulmonary hypertension comes from that. Group three is from uh, pulmonary disease itself that leads to increased pressures. Group four is due to, uh, similar to what Joe was talking about, chronic, uh, chronic VCE, uh, specifically PEs, that then uh, lead to pulmonary hypertension. And then the group five is kind of a mix of everything else that doesn't fit into group one through four. So again, our project focused on group one here. So a little bit about pulmonary arterial hypertension. Um, the sort of red flag signs when somebody comes into clinic or you admit them to the hospital. Dyspnea, inability to perform the same way that they did years ago. Um, and dizziness slash syncope, pre-syncope, those are kind of the hallmark symptoms that people come in to the clinic with. And then if this uh, disease process goes on for a long time, they eventually develop signs of right heart failure. So on physical exam, you can see things like elevated jugular venous pressure, you can see edema, et cetera. So the, the sad thing about this whole thing is it's a pretty rare disease, which means you know, funding sources are not necessarily robust. Um, in 1987, that's this first study here, um, it was in the U.S. population. It was about one to two cases per million. <coughs> At that time, the mean age of diagnosis was 36 years, and there's a female predominance. About 20 years later, in France, um, they had a, another national registry that found about the same incidence, uh, 2.4 cases per one million, and the prevalence was about 15 cases per one million people. The sad part about this disease is this is actually an improvement in the mortality rate as we've had more therapies, but it still is quite high at 43% um, in a given five year. That's from the time of diagnosis to the time of death. Um, and as the population becomes more elderly, this is being diagnosed uh, more often in the elderly, and uh, people are living longer with the disease into their elder years. 
So there are some definitions that you need to meet in order to be diagnosed with the condition. One is you need to have an elevated pulmonary pressure. You have to have a relatively low wedge pressure, which suggests that this is really an arterial phenomenon and not from, for instance, left side of heart failure causing right side of heart failure. Um, you have to have an elevated pulmonary vascular resistance. Again, that's the measurement of the arterial uh, sort of vasoconstrictive state. And then you can't have anything else that would have caused this. So the diagnosis, there are some guidelines. Um, the, the sort of hallmark and the first thing you would start with in somebody that you're suspicious of this disease is a screening echocardiogram where you can get a sense of how high the pulmonary pressures might be. <coughs> echo is pretty good, but it's not completely accurate. So if you have a high suspicion and there's evidence on echo of elevated pulmonary pressures, the recommendation is to actually make the formal diagnosis with the right heart catheterization. The other benefit of doing a catheterization is you can give um, a vasodilator when you have the catheter in and see if there's a response. And that helps you to try to pick which therapy you would put a patient on. Um, you want to rule out other things. So you get a chest x-ray, EKG. Uh, you do scan a little bit of chronic thromboembolic disease um, and PFTs to see if there's any lung dysfunction. There's a whole bunch of labs that um, can be ordered. Um, some of them are sort of standard, the CBC and LFTs and that sort of thing. And then some are individual-based uh, if you're going to go down the rheumatologic conditions to look for like mixed uh, connective tissue disease. There are um, sort of functional capacity uh, parameters as well, six-minute walk test um, and exercise at the cardiogram, uh, cardiopulmonary testing to see what their uh, oxygen utilization is. And then you can actually do a right heart cath during exercise because some people only get symptomatic when they're doing uh, exertional things. So similar to heart failure, uh, the World Health Organization has a um, way to classify how severe some of these symptoms are. The least severe is class one, um, and similar to New York Heart Association heart failure uh, sort of classification, they can pretty much do most activities and they may get a little short of breath. And that uh, progresses to class four where people are usually symptomatic at rest. The main difference between the two is that um, the sort of dyspnea and the syncope presyncope is a little more prevalent in pulmonary hypertension than in the heart failure world. So there are a number of different drugs. Uh, this is actually no longer a complete list. There are two new drugs that have been approved in the last year, uh, both oral. Um, but there are many different ways to give the drugs. And then within each class, there are different uh, types of medications. We'll get into a little more of that. So for the actual project, this was um, started by Dr. Andrus as part of his TDI classes, and he had to sort of uh, create a master's thesis. And so he used this Markov model, which I'll tell you a little bit more about, um, to generate some of this data. And then I sort of came on and we completed the project and we've written it up, and hopefully we'll get it published. Been rejected once, so we'll see where it goes. But, um, so really the goal is to evaluate the cost-effectiveness for patients that are on a single therapy, but their symptoms are either the same or getting progressively worse. So as I mentioned, we use this Markov model. I'll tell you more about that. Um, and then we um, basically took our utilities that we generated from the Markov model and things like the San Francisco 36 quality of life measurements um, that have been published in the literature. And then we took the costs and we sort of so what was the least expensive that gave the most benefit to patients? 
So a little bit about cost-effective analysis. Um, really, you're looking at the ratio of the cost of whatever medicine you're giving to the relative benefit that's either perceived by the patient or if you have a hard outcome like mortality, morbidity, that sort of thing. Um, this is often used when either a disease is, is rare and you need to sort of uh, get the best bang for your buck or when resources are scarce and you need to figure out uh, how you can be uh, sort of equitable to everybody with limited resources. So this is more of a technical point. Um, we won't get too much into it, but a cost-effective analysis technically uses natural units, so number of lives saved, number of cases prevented, and a cost-utility analysis is actually what we did. Um, measures the outcome in quality-adjusted life years. They are used interchangeably, and I'm going to take that liberty. So utility is uh, one of the ways that cost-effective uh, sort of analysis research, um, that's their outcome. So you can think of it as the number of years lived in an optimal state of health. So this is all based on the patient. You know, how often do they have to get their blood drawn? What side effects do they get from the medicine versus what is their quality of life because it's getting extended by this medicine? Um, this really places a high value on the individual's preference and doesn't look at things like mortality, morbidity, and that sort of thing. The simple way to say it is it's the length of time that they have times the quality of the life that they have for that time. So a Markov model is one of the tools that's used in decision analysis uh, research. And it's a quantitative and uh, uses probabilities based on the literature to figure out um, what would happen in a hypothetical situation. It's useful when patients are sort of under constant threat, in this case from their symptoms of dyspnea and presyncope, syncope. And it assumes that a patient exists in a finite box. So they're either asymptomatic, they have symptoms, or unfortunately they're dead. That's pretty much the endpoint of the Markov model. The model keeps running until eventually all patients die. So it's a little morbid, but helpful. Um, so the events, the sort of outcomes that we get from a Markov model are when patients transition from those discrete health states. So this is a very simplified diagram of what a Markov model is, but I think it'll serve our purposes. So in our particular research project, we have somebody that's on one therapy. They have functional class three symptoms. And so you want to give them a medicine to improve those symptoms. So here we give our alternative therapies, and I'll show you the strategy that we use in just a second. And then they either go on and they survive, or they die. If they survive, they either remain with their same symptoms. Unfortunately, things don't improve. They either stay stable or get worse. Or they move on to functional class four. If they're in this category, they come back to this point, and then they run through the model again and again and again until they eventually die. So these were our strategies. Um, I won't go through the, the details, but essentially we're combining oral plus inhaled, oral plus oral, or some of the subcutaneous or intravenous preparations. Again, this is after they've already failed one type of therapy. So these are the, the costs that are generated. Um, this is largely from um, online pharmacies and was sort of verified by a couple of different sources as far as what the price for the medication is. And then the lab costs were generated by the um, Center for Medicare Services. Uh, they're sort of what they reimburse for laboratory costs. Um, so you can see the cost of medications here. Um, for certain medications, you need to have a tunnel, tunnel central line placed, so you have to be hospitalized for that. 
you know, stay a couple days to make sure everything's working. And then um, at about, uh, I think it's 0.2 um, events per year per patient, they will get a line infection from that tunnel catheter. So they have to come in, get antibiotics, get the line removed, have some sort of temporary device, and come back in and put another line in. These medications, some of them require fairly frequent monitoring. Uh, CBC in general is every three months. Uh, hepatic function test for certain medications is monthly. And then because most of these medicines are teratogenic, there's a female predominance, you need to make sure that the patients aren't getting pregnant. The prescription drugs comes in from specifically the subcutaneous infusion. There's near universal agreement that there's pain associated with the infusion of Droprostanol. Um, and so it's usually treated with a combination of narcotics and uh, neuropathic medicines. So this is kind of a take-home slide. Um, on the horizontal axis, you'll see annual cost. This is um, based in US dollars. And then here you have the effectiveness. And so what we found is that when you're trying to pick which therapies people should go on, it's pretty clear that the combination, these are two oral medications, uh, sildenafil or Viagra, plus Cosentin is the cheapest and the most effective. You'll see that it dominated all these other strategies by cost and effectiveness. And the only other one that was similarly efficacious was quite unaffordable. So as with any study, there are some limitations to this. Um, in general, and specifically pulmonary arterial hypertension, there are no large randomized clinical trials. There just aren't enough people. There's not enough money to fund them. There's really no, um, no easy way to monitor response to medication. People usually use things like six-minute uh, walk tests and sort of uh, personal values, quality of life, and that sort of thing. Um, the, the reason that it's studied, though, is because of the high mortality that I mentioned. So, this particular type of modeling uses hypothetical patients. So these patients don't exist, which is one of the comments from the reviewers when we submitted. They couldn't quite get that concept. Um, the characteristics that we use to put through the model are based on what little trial data we do have in people with pulmonary hypertension. So it's, in that sense, a, a relevant population, but they, they actually don't exist. Because of the, the time of when this model was run, the new agents weren't actually in existence, or at least they weren't approved yet. So they are not incorporated into the model. Um, and both of them are new oral agents. So as uh, time comes on, they should certainly be included in any further future analysis. So I, I think the, um, the sort of future of this is, and I, I thought about this as Joe was talking, randomized is probably not a good way to do this. I don't know that that would be ethical because you couldn't have really a placebo because you would do standard of care, but there really is no standard of care. That's why we did this model in the first place. Um, but I think you could do sort of a prospective cohort and apply this in real life and see if it actually does bear out the results of the model. And it's important to include things like mortality. Again, we don't expect an improvement, um, but we may delay mortality by uh, sort of changing the pathological signaling that's occurring. The cost of therapy, many of these medications are quite expensive, especially as new medications get approved. Um, and then, of course, the quality of life from the patient perspective. So I'd like to thank uh, Dr. Andrews and Dr. Catherwood, and then uh, my family, because uh, they put up with me being here a lot. Um, so we have uh, my wife, Dawn, 
Scarlett the little one, and Lorelei the uh, relative big one. <laughs> and I'll just leave off on this slide, just, just sort of as a schematic of the what I'm more comfortable with, the basic science of how things actually work, but I don't think we really need to go in unless there's questions. So if there are any questions, I'm happy to take them. I'm glad you showed that slide because you know, even in your idiopathic apprehension, I think you probably have at least two basic pathophysiologies. One is vasoconstriction, the other is proliferation, and vascular proliferation. Is it, is it appropriate to do sort of all comers, or do you think you ought to do a little pathophysiological subdivision so that you're just not mixing everybody into one big pool? When you look at this, I think the question is answered. Yeah, um, and, and the other question is, um, you know, is, is this easier to study in the lab where you can manipulate these things to try to recapitulate the patents in humans um, and study from the molecular pathway and then develop a new drug for a novel target or a different chemical structure? That well, you got to know the molecular pathway in humans. It's not right. unless you're going to find rats that have Medicare. Right. <laughs> But it's true. Um, many of the groups, and, and there is a significant amount of overlap. Um, you know, some people will have class two, class three, and maybe some class one pulmonary uh, hypertension all mixed in. So it is not an easy thing to tease out. I just saw you a little line. You know, going back 60 years to the days when we used to look at congenital heart disease as well as these conditions, the, the variety of causes and pathophysiologies of pulmonary hypertension. Even now, we didn't understand anything, mm -hmm. except that it was obviously a very, very heterogeneous mixed bag. Yes. Thanks for that um, nice presentation. I was wondering if you could maybe speculate or first tell, say whether or not it surprised you that there was such a front runner, and if you could speculate maybe based on this slide, but why would it be that 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 particular combination was such a one. Yeah, um, so I can't tell you pharmacodynamically why, um, but, but it does hit two different pathways. Uh, one is the phosphodiesterase that's inhibited by the sildenafil, and then the placentin is an endothelium receptor. Um, and so you'll see on this slide, those are two out of ten of the, the three, and maybe even all three um, pathways that, that sort of converge on this to create this disease. I think it wasn't completely surprising because the two oral medications are pretty well tolerated. They have relatively minimal side effects. And um, you know they, they don't have to go through hospitalization. They don't have to go through. Uh, some of these medications need to be inhaled nine times a day. Sometimes it's nine puffs four times a day. Um, other medications need to be refrigerated, but the subcutaneous and the IV need to be refrigerated and then delivered. And it's a it's a 24 hour. It's not a you know every six hour type of thing. It's just a constant infusion. So I think a lot of the, the data is driven from the patient's perspective, relative <coughs> ease of taking the medicines and being able to tolerate them. Again, that was a great presentation. You know, uh, when in the various diseases that are so bleak, like this one is, uh, the typical sort of strategy is to be more aggressive or treat more earlier in the, in the cascade. And so I was wondering, is anybody, it, has anybody, as you looked over the field in the Markov model, 
Does anybody look to see whether treatment with monotherapy versus treatment with dual therapy prevents progression better than monotherapy? Um, so there are a couple of papers that, 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 as you say, are more aggressive in the younger patients. Um, there hasn't really been enough to really have a fair comparison to say. And to be honest, I don't know about the reimbursement ramifications of jumping to two therapies when somebody has a treatment fail monotherapy. Yeah, but I, I think I, I, if death is the end point in five years, right. I think the cost issue in a rare disease is a little bit different. Yeah. So I, I just think, uh, and we're not talking about necessarily. Uh, so anyhow, so there's not much data on that. Question. One question. So if something works, it's nice, but there's always like a time factor. How long does it work? How does the time factor in this particular analysis? So. Um, so the general um, sort of way that all the trials have been designed around three-month follow-ups, all the medication trials with pulmonary arterial hypertension. Some are health models, um, that's their endpoint. They do three months, and that's it. This one is actually what's called a lifetime horizon, meaning that the model runs until the patient dies. It's done in three-month increments to be consistent with what's been reported in the literature. Um, so in other words, the, the follow-up time Get back to this. So the time from initiation <coughs> to this sort of discrete state is three months, and then you run it again, and so it's in three month increments until the patient dies. Uh, thank you all for coming. Um, just one more announcement. Um, well, first of all, I'm extremely proud of our residents, and I hope you appreciate the range and the skills and the talents uh, that our, our residents here demonstrate here. So this year, we decided to do it a, dif a bit differently. I invite you to stay to uh, judge, help judge our posters, because the graduating residents, as part of the project requirement in research, they also have, beside presentation, is that a poster they do. So please stay and help us uh, judge. Thank you very much for coming.